So welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. And my name is Nino Ramirez. I'm the editor-in-chief of the journal. And today we'll be discussing the article, Regulation of Focal Precision by Neurogenergic Modulation of a Motor Nucleus. And the lead author is uh, Zach Sheldon, Castellino, Glaze, Bibo, Yao, and, and Mark Schmidt. And uh, this article really got my attention because it addresses neuromodulation in general and the role of the locus cerulus in particular and how it regulates a very complex learned behavior. And the birdsong system to me is, is uh, clearly one of the best systems to study complex learned behavior. So uh, I cannot uh, say how excited I was when I uh, read and studied this, this article. And of course, it was also a great pleasure for me to, to use this because Mark is a very good friend of mine. We have many common interests in, in neuromodulation and control of behavior in general. So before we begin, let's meet our guest, Mark Schmidt. And, uh, and Mark, why don't we start uh, that you tell us a little bit about how this paper came about and, uh, and the authors involved. So hello, Mark. Hi, Nino. It's a, it's a huge pleasure, and I've been a big fan of yours for many years, and also Miriam, who works at the Journal of Neurophysiology. And as I mentioned, I had interacted with her on numerous occasions in one of my early papers in, in my career back in 1999. Um, so uh, this is probably going to become one of my most favorite papers, I think, and not because it was the easiest paper. Uh, I was talking to you, Nino, um, so the experiments were actually started in 2008 by Christina Castellino, who was uh, a very talented postdoc in my laboratory. And we were interested in uh, targeting the locus ceruleus and stimulating it and looking at the effect of norepinephrine on auditory processing. And we had shown earlier that, that you know, uh, auditory inputs can actually be gated off or gated um, with increases in norepinephrine, and it kind of suggested that maybe when the when the the male bird is aroused, that increases in norepinephrine can actually block auditory inputs from reaching some of the higher order circuits in the song system. So we worked on that, and then um, I went on a sabbatical. I, I'm from Belgium. I wanted to go back to Europe, and I said I'm going to go visit my my friend Richard Hanloser in Zurich. And I honestly had no real good ideas of what to do when I was there. I just wanted to be in Zurich. Uh, and so uh, we, we talked and, and then I was thinking, so a paper had just come out that I'll, I'll talk a bit more about it later by my friend Dave Perkel. We were postdocs together, which was just a brilliant study looking at the role of norepinephrine in basically blocking synaptic inputs into this motor nucleus from this prefrontal area known as Elman. And so when I was in Zurich, I said, you know, it'd be really cool to actually try and if we could dialyze uh, norepinephrine in, into this area, uh, Lman, uh, actually RA, and see would it actually change some of the properties of the song that, that the male produces when he's facing either a female or when he's alone. So I came back from, from uh, Zurich, uh, learning the technique that Richard showed me, uh, and then we applied it in, in the singing bird and infused norepinephrine. And so then, then the project kind of evolved, and then I got another postdoc uh, involved, Chris Glaze, and we did some of the analysis looking at the song properties uh, with stimulations in locus ceruleus and also direct inf infusion of norepinephrine in this area. 
And we, we submitted it to a journal. Uh, it got rejected because um, it just, it wasn't there yet. It wasn't ready yet. Um, anyway, long story short, the two postdocs end up moving on to uh, different positions and then eventually going into the private sector. And I was stuck with this paper and it, it just wasn't there. Every time we sent it to a journal, they always wanted a little bit more. And so then I recruited undergrads, um, Alvina, did some ex key experiments that I needed. And then Steve Bibu came in and he did more experiments. Um, and it was almost there. We sent it off and, and you know, it, it got like just like three pages or no, actually six pages of, of, of comments, which were a little bit overwhelming. And I almost gave up. It was sitting in bioarchives. Uh, and I said, okay, this was like a year and a half ago. I said, you know, this paper is just, I think it's really interesting, but I just don't have the bandwidth to do all the experiments myself. And I don't have the, the computational tools to actually analyze all this sophisticated data. So the student came, Zach, and he's one of these students who just, you ask him to do something and he says, sure, I can do it. <laughs> like ne never stresses out, right? And so he took all this data set he did all the reanalyses that we needed to do. I did a bunch more experiments. And as you know, locus ruralis is very small. So targeting it with an electrode to stimulate is, is not easy. You get lots of misses. Anyway, long story short, we sent it to the Journal of Neurophysiology, my new favorite journal, and uh, it got accepted. And now I'm on a podcast talking about this paper. And it would not have happened if it had not been for these three undergrads. Um, and so I think that's just a wonderful story for this paper. Wonderful. Yeah, so, so we feel really lucky that we got the paper when it was basically at, at the peak of, of perfection. And, uh, and really, I was indeed very intrigued by your computational analysis techniques. Uh, you used this to address variability. And, and to be totally honest, it was a little bit over my head. Can you maybe quickly explain to us you know, what kind of techniques you had to use in this context to analyze it uh, in the way you did. Yeah, and again, it's, it's a little bit over my head too. And, and this was spearheaded by Chris Glaze, who was the other mm -hmm. postdoc involved. And he was just, um, he, he did his uh, PhD with Todd Troyer, just a very smart guy and who really understands these computational tools. And yet he had looked at this uh, while he was a graduate student, so he kind of applied this. So basically the question was, um, can we look at uh, song characteristics from rendition to rendition in these mm -hmm. in these zebra finches. Um, one of the, one of the reasons why, and I'll get to the technique in a second. What, mm -hmm. One of the reasons why uh, the zebra finch is such a um, popular um, model to study sort of neural circuits and behavior and learning is because the song is incredibly stereotyped. So every time the bird sings. Once he learns a song as an adult, it's A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. And the acoustic structure is almost exactly the same for each syllable from rendition to rendition. The gaps between syllables, the overall sequence, exactly the same. But if you, if you look at songs when the male sings by himself versus when he sings to the female, there are subtle differences that appear. So when he sings to the female, his goal is to, to impress her. This is his performance. In other words, he's trying to exploit the situation to produce the best possible song that he can make. This is you going to Carnegie Hall, you've practiced your Chopin piece for years, and so now you're playing it in, in front of your audience, you're, you're doing a performance. When the male is singing by himself, even though his song is very 
precise and stereotyped, there are subtle differences from rendition to rendition. And we call this song variability. And these are very subtle. So instead of having the fundamental pitch always being, let's say, 400 hertz, it wiggles up and down more than it would when he sings to the female. So you can think of that song when he sings by himself as kind of like the practice phase. Uh, this is you practicing your Chopin piece before you actually go to Carnegie Hall. So these subtle differences had been observed about 10, 15 years ago. And this difference between a, a, a very precise song when you sing to the female and a more variable song when you sing to the male has been really exploited in our, in our field, looking at the neural mechanisms for that, which is very exciting. And so, you know, what role does the basal ganglia have in generating this variability? Is this variability random or is it directional in the direction that the bird actually wants to learn? And, and these are kind of proxies for understanding what actually happens, I think what most people are excited about is like very early in the life of a bird when he's actually trying to practice and learn his song. And as you know, there are parallels with human speech, right? Uh, so that's why mm -hmm. the songbird has. So a lot of people, the way, the way they did the analyses was they took only once, like the syllable that was easiest to study within the song of the bird. And these tended to be the so-called harmonic syllables. And so these have stacks of frequency bands, and you can look at the fundamental frequency, which is also the pitch, essentially, and you can look at the variability of that pitch. It's much harder to do if the syllable has much more complex acoustic features. And so um, people had really kind of relied only on looking at sort of the simple syllables. And so what Chris did is he came up with a computational way of actually being able to looking at acoustic variability in all of the different syllables. And I, I, I can't comfortably tell you all the details, um, but it's essentially you're creating some sort of a template of that syllable and you're projecting it into this multi-dimensional space. And then you're asking what is the distance of the different syllables that are produced, the different renditions, how far are they from that sort of template syllable? And you can do that in all the different dimensions that you want uh, that characterize the acoustic features of that syllable. And then the nice thing that Chris also did, uh, which is really like, th this is his major contribution to the paper, which is very interesting, and it adds another dimension to the variability. Most people had focused only on the acoustic variability. He had also looked at timing variability. So it turns out when uh, the male sings to the female, not only are the acoustic features very tight, but also the timing is very tight. So there's not as much from rendition to the rendition. You don't have sort of a short and then a long and then short. It's pretty much always the same. And so he was able to use this, this the, his, his new method to actually quantify temporal variability as well as acoustic variability. So that, that's essentially, so that, that's a technical um, advance, uh, but you know, and, and it offers new, certain new insights. Um, and then we use that technique to actually test the effect that norepinephrine might have on the switching from going to a very stereotyped precise song that you sing to the female to a more variable song that you sing when you're by yourself and you're practicing. My God, that was so fascinating because uh, especially, you know, like your, your analogy of, of playing in, in the Carnegie Hall versus uh, at home. And, and to be honest, I, I, I have never this experience, of course, playing in a Carnegie Hall, but but when I was a kid, you know, I practiced piano. And when I was on the stage, 
that little bit of norepinephrine helped me to make it perfect, you know? The same thing when I, I'm a little nervous, it's good to give a talk because you don't do the um, et cetera, because you reduce it. But I tell you now, 50 years later, if I play piano in front of even my wife, I get a mental block and I make a mistake. And it's kind of very interesting that, that you know, your norepinephrine, in my case now, turns off the, the perfection, you know, and, and, and makes it very, very difficult. And, and I think you're, that's why this, this study is really interesting for, for artists. But, and, but and, on the other hand, you don't have yeah. to impress your wife anymore. Right, so you don't. She's yeah, no, 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 but a big it gets, performance. Oh, I always have to impress my wife. You know, it never ends. <laughs> but she's the hardest to impress, so that's why I try the hardest. But, uh, ah. but, um, but I think it's a very interesting uh, role of norepinephrine in, in in being a regulator of arousal in general, but then also in in shaping cognitive tasks, you know, and, 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 mm -hmm. and, and increasing the precision of these cognitive tasks. And I think that's a very fine balance that switches from one state to the other. And it is a problem that is not only there in birdsong, but I mean, that has been uh, uh, discussed a lot also in the mailing system. And, and one of the big questions I think is uh, you, the locus surrealis is not many neurons, you know, and, and, Uh, and how do you think it works that they can be uh, compartmentalized into specific units that can independently control very select behaviors versus a general arousal function, you know? And it seems the bird song seems to be very important for that role. So maybe if you can elaborate a little bit on that yeah, concept. I wish, of, I, could, you know, I, I wish I could tell you more. Um, I, yeah. I, I think... Some of these midbrain uh, neuromodulator areas are just fascinating for their abilities. And I'm not just talking about locus ruleus, but like the ventral tegmental areas yeah. like with mm -hmm. dopamine. They're relatively small. Uh, they have so relatively small number of neurons, and yet they can do so many different uh, things. Uh, and, you know, more and more, I think people are realizing it's not just one homogeneous group of neurons, but they're actually maybe compartmentalized. And so mm -hmm. how do we think of norepinephrine? And obviously, when norepinephrine gets dumped into different parts of the brain, you can imagine the targets can actually regulate what effect they have. And as you know, uh, these neuromodulators, their effect is really dependent on the types of receptors that they're going to bind to. And these might be G-protein coupled mm -hmm. receptors that could have different, different cascades, obviously, and they could act postsynaptically post as well as presynaptically. But I think there's more and more evidence and some of the work from Barry Waterhouse is really nice, suggesting that, that the locus ceruleus might have actually different compartments and might actually have different functions. But one of the things that we showed in our study, which I thought was quite interesting, is that it's very clear that the locus ceruleus has an arousal function in terms of song. So mm -hmm. if we looked at just the number of songs that birds sang within unit time, is that if we stimulated the locus ceruleus, and not, not very often, I, f I forget exactly, but it was like once per second for about a two hour period, that if we measured the number of songs that they produce over that two hour period, that was increased. So it was clearly an arousal effect from stimulating the locus ceruleus. Um, our question was, what role does norepinephrine have on this switch between being very precise and being more variable? And the target that we um, decided to pursue was this area called RA. And it's part mm -hmm. of the motor system, the descending motor system um, of the so-called 
song circuit. And RA projects to this massive area in the brainstem known as the nucleus retroambigualis, as well as uh, an area called DM, which is like PAG, which then gets coupled into the respiratory areas and modulate respiratory patterns to eventually drive uh, muscular output. So RA is really, some people talk about it kind of like layer five of motor cortex. So it, it's really part of that motor pathway. It directly projects to the premotor neurons for expiration um, as well as inspiration. So we targeted that area uh, with norepinephrine. Um, and what we noticed is that when we targeted that area with norepinephrine is that it did not change the frequency of singing. So in other words, we're adding norepinephrine, but the bird is not singing more. So what that suggests is that when you stimulate the locus ceruleus, it has multiple targets. Some of the targets are engaging arousal and causing the bird to sing more songs, but some of the targets like this area RA have effects that are different from arousal. Uh, and they are very specific in terms of blocking the inputs from this prefrontal area that we think drives the variability that you see when birds sing by themselves. <laughs> that is so fascinating. And I think this is exactly what, what happens if you uh, perform, you know, because uh, you cannot have too much cortical input because cortical input is way too slow. And, and, and indeed, like, as I said, if I, if I start thinking, uh, oh, there comes this difficult pass, I make yep. a mistake, you know? And right. it's kind of interesting. My, my brother is a guitarist and uh, he says he can tell uh, when one of his students will make a mistake already by the breathing before the mistake happens. <laughs> That's you very know? interesting, yeah. yeah. So basically uh, uh, you start getting down the path where your precision is lost. And then the mistake comes. And I think that's why, why your vocal control is, is, is a perfect, perfect no, I mean, We've all had that experience, right? It's similar. I think um, I pre-record myself for lectures and I don't have that, that norepinephrine drive because I'm just pre-recording myself. I'm not, I don't have an audience and I'll lecture. And as I'm lecturing, I'll have like an intru intrusive thought that says, yes. that really sucks, Mark, or I don't think you understand that figure. I don't think you will understand that figure. And it's almost like the norepinephrine cannot override those sort of intrusive thoughts. And, and that's where maybe we could talk about this later, like sort of for ADHD, mm -hmm. right? Kind of like um, yes. with sort of all these intrusive thoughts um, that make you have a hard time focusing. And then all of a sudden things just crash and fall apart. And I think that's the same thing with, with uh, your, your, your brother uh, talking about the pianist, mm -hmm. right? If, if all of a sudden you're afraid about that next figure or that next piece, and you start thinking about it, then, then you're lost, right? Yeah, and I think that's why the bird song is such an amazing model system because it is a extremely complex model learning. And, and, and basically, you have to be extremely precise and therefore it can be also messed up if, you, if you're not precise. And then, and then the, the, the female uh, bird will not accept you because you're not precise. So I think it's a, it's a fantastic model system. And, uh, and the basal ganglia involved here, this pathway. So Mark, you, you stimulated um, the locus cerulis neurons. And do you think uh, some of the effects you see could be because of co-transmitters like peptides, dopamine, or other neuromodulators? And, um, and to go one step further, you know, What's the role of optogenetic approaches in birdsong? I mean, do you think there's a future for this? Have people used it at all? 
Well, there's absolutely a future. And so let me try to answer your question very briefly, because I think that's a very good idea. Obviously, as you know, a lot of these neuromodulatory areas also co-transmit neuropeptides. And I don't think we have any good idea. Um, I have to say that in our experiment, in addition to infusing norepinephrine directly into RA, we also um, infused uh, fentolamine, which is an, an alpha adrenergic receptor antagonist. So we know that the effect that we observed was mediated um, by effects of norepinephrine on those receptors. And I, I should also, I, I want to put a plug in here that this really is um, the in vivo validation of a paper that Dave Perkel did right around the time when we started these experiments uh, in the early 2000s, where he did this beautiful slice uh, experiment where he, you know, he's just a fantastic physiologist and he did all the proper controls. And so what he did is he could stimulate inputs to RA from the higher order motor area, which is HVC to RA. And then he could also stimulate inputs from the prefrontal area onto RA. And then he could ask, whether those synaptic weights were changed with norepinephrine. And so he showed that norepinephrine had absolutely no effect on the HVC to RA projections, but it completely suppressed synaptic inputs from LMAN to RA. So, and, and he showed that using pharmacology. And so we basically, and he showed that this was done presynaptically. So the norepinephrine was binding to um, alpha adrenergic receptors on the LMAN axons prior to them releasing transmitter onto the RA neurons, if that makes sense. And so it was very beautiful pharmacology. And so we already knew that there was a good chance that adding norepinephrine would block inputs from LMAN and that adding the, the antagonist would actually prevent uh, that from happening. Um, so, so again, the pharmacology, uh, going back to optogenetics, Absolutely, right? So we're sticking, uh, for our, our local cerulea stimulation, we're sticking electrodes uh, in LC. It's hard to hit LC. So you're, mm -hmm. you know, you have enough current to stimulate, you know, a population of local cerulea. So we don't know exactly how many neurons we're stimulating. There might be fibers of passage. There might be other areas nearby uh, that actually cloud our, our findings a little bit. But again, using pretty careful pharmacology, we, we were able to disambiguate that. But I think an optogenetic method that would target specifically um, using drivers for like tyrosine hydroxylase or something like that, where you can specifically target um, these types of neurons in those areas would be much cleaner. And there are a number of labs that are pioneering the use of optogenetics in songbirds. It's a little bit harder because the viruses that work really easily in mammals don't always work so easily in birds, but um, a lot of labs, Rich Mooney's lab, um, uh, Todd Roberts have, have made this happen and have made some really good progress. Fantastic. Uh, Mark, uh, do we know anything about the locus cerulus neurons themselves? Do they switch in their firing behavior from let's say tonic to phasic mode? Some really nice uh, review articles Uh, by Gary Aston Joan and Jonathan Cohen in the in the mid to in 2005 or so, providing a framework to think about the role of of norepinephrine in the context of um, exploitation and exploration type of behavior, uh, and suggesting that that maybe 
tonic levels um, of, of norepinephrine increase that might be involved in sort of like continuous firing of these neurons versus the phasic inputs might have different types of roles in these types of behaviors. Um, and, and I think, you know, people in the mammalian field have been um, much better at being able to record from locus ceruleus. In the songbird, unfortunately, no one has actually uh, managed yet to record from neurons in the locus ceruleus. So we don't actually know the exact patterns. I would love to know what locus ceruleus looks like when the bird is singing. And obviously when it's actually listening to song or hear, or, or maybe even encoding the, 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 the memory of its father or these really important phases of the learning process or the song production process, but we don't know. So in our experiment, all we did essentially is increase um, in a tonic manner by just firing away, stimulating locus ceruleus once per second. We just had sort of a tonic increase of norepinephrine basically released in different areas of, of the system. And we try to mimic that by, you know, microdialysis. And if you think of that as sort of like a tonic increase of norepinephrine uh, into RA. I'm sure that if you were able to do that in a more, with more temporal precision that would mimic phasic um, uh, activation of locus ceruleus, you could probably start asking some really interesting questions. Um, and, and I think these are, these are sort of experiments that someone should do down the road um, and are very interesting, but I, we don't actually know in the bird about phasic versus tonic. Well, I mean, one of the big questions now is, of course, what's the next step in your work? So where, where do you want to go from here? That's a very interesting question because um, I am basically giving this project to anyone who wants to pursue it. My lab has actually moved in a very different direction. So we're doing sort of computational behavior and we're focusing on female songbirds. Um, and so we're not right now looking at, um, at the role of norepinephrine in this switch between directed and undirected song. But if I were to continue, I think I would go down the road exactly that you're suggesting is actually try to record from the locus ceruleus and ask what is the pattern of activation uh, in locus ceruleus during directed and undirected song. And so does it actually change? The prediction is that locus ceruleus becomes more active during directed song because it's releasing more norepinephrine and it's shutting the motor the, 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 the input from this prefrontal area onto RA that contributes to the variability and it's basically shutting that input. Uh, but we don't actually know that. So it'd be nice to see the neural signature for that. I think another area that I would like to also pursue is asking where is norepinephrine acting on in terms of increasing the overall rate? So where is arousal happening? Um, and I think there are some, some nice target areas, the, the, the pre-optic area is, is an area that I probably would have pursued. And we tried to do that for a while with Christina. Um, it didn't pan out mostly for technical reasons, but there's no reason why we shouldn't actually do that. And then another area that I find fascinating, and it goes back to your um, analogy with the, with the piano teacher kind of predicting, you know, when the student would make a mistake is that maybe during performance, you actually want to lock the system down so it's really only focusing on performance and that means you want to remove all possible variability coming into the system from your motor areas 
but you also want to block all auditory or sensory inputs coming in that might actually perturb uh, the system. And so, you know, we had done, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we, ha we had done some early studies where norepinephrine could gate auditory inputs into these auditory areas. That's how we started. So essentially, when you think about that, as a locus ceruleus becomes activated during directed song, it dumps norepinephrine in a number of different areas. It increases arousal. It blocks the ability of variable signals from the motor pathway from, from influencing the, the motor, the main motor path. And it also gates auditory inputs from entering this motor pathway. So you're kind of isolating the motor pathway to only do one task. And that's the task for performance. And I think that's an interesting question. And it's perhaps not surprising that, you know, some of the drugs that touch upon the neuroadrenergic system um, can be used for things like ADHD, where you're basically focusing in and, and removing sort of extraneous sensory inputs, perhaps, and even perhaps extraneous motor inputs. But then you have to be careful because that's really great for performance. But obviously, if I block the variable motor inputs from coming in from basal ganglia, then I'm also affecting motor learning because that's, that's important for motor learning and for kind of adjusting and, 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 and fine tuning your motor output, right? So, so if, you, if you put an animal or a person into that locked state, they might be very good at what they do right then, but it might actually remove some of that plasticity that you might want for normal behavior. So we have to sort of think about it in, in, in both ways. That is so fascinating. Absolutely. I think this is very important in the context of ADHD and, and know how you inhibit other behavior and are not able to inhibit other behaviors under certain circumstances. And of course, the idea is also that it's not only norepinephrine, but also maybe dopamine, et cetera. Do you think there are other pathways in addition that, that play a role? Like, do you have something like a VTA in your song system that yeah we absolutely do have a VTA and um, there are some people I have actually a technician of mine who was an undergrad who is now just moved to be a technician with Vikram who just started his lab at uh, Columbia and Vikram is like a magician I think he really is and so he was able to record from neurons in the VTA they're, they're, as you know, they're, lot, they're not a ton of neurons, but there's still lots of neurons, but they're not that many neurons that project to the exact area that he wanted them to project, right? So this is this area called area X, which is involved in song learning. And so he was able to selectively record and stimulate these neurons um, by going into this area that's about a few hundred microns in diameter you know, eight millimeters down in the brain of a small bird and target these neurons. It was a heroic task for sure, but, but he was able to do this. And um, there are a number of other labs that are, that are pursuing these types of questions with, with a lot of success. And so, yes, uh, there is a very big interest in the role of dopamine, especially in its role in reinforcement learning in the context of uh, learning song in, the, in this species of bird. Very cool. Tell me, uh, so you focus on, on, of course, male bird singing, but do you think there's a, a, a sex difference that you have similar pathways in females or uh, what do we know about this? Yeah, so you've actually touched upon the reason I mentioned before why my lab is moving into a different direction. Um, and that is 
a conundrum. So we call this circuit, the song circuit, or the song system. Many people call it different things. And it has always been assumed that it only exists in males and not in females. It turns out if you look carefully, uh, and I did this with my uh, technician, Jesse, um, who's now in Vikram's lab, we looked very carefully in both um, female zebra finches as well as in female cowbirds and other species. And in that species, every single part of the circuit that we find in males exists in females. So then you might say, oh, it's a song circuit, so probably these females sing a little bit. And there are species where females sing. But it turns out that in the zebra finch and the cowbird is that the female does not sing but they have this circuit. They have HVC, they have RA, they have Alman, this prefrontal area projecting to RA. RA projects to the, uh, the retroambiguous nucleus in the, in the brainstem. So everything is exactly the same, but these birds don't sing. So what does it do? And so that's one of the areas we're pursuing. It might be involved in the control of precise timing in terms of how males and females call to each other. And that's a, very, that's a very good possibility. The possibility that we're pursuing is a little more crazy is that we're zooming out and thinking of song in songbirds as a courtship behavior. And so maybe the circuit is for the control of courtship behavior, not just song. And so if you look at females, they have a distinct number of courtship behaviors. They have these very rapid wing strokes that they produce in response to male song. And they can also go into this posture that's known as a copulation solicitation display. And we think that the song system is actually in females involved in the regulation of this copulatory display. And so that's kind of the area that we're moving into. Um, it's fun because it's risky, nobody cares about it, and we're the only lab studying this, but hopefully we can use the same neurophysiological tools to actually identify the circuitry in the female and ask how do these areas that we know so much about in the control of song are actually involved in the control of courtship behaviors in females. Wow, fantastic. Maybe the females are dreaming of the, the male bird song and, and I have to be able to replicate it. Yeah, yeah, this is totally cool. I think uh, crazy projects are always the most rewarding ones, so this will be cool. And, and of course, I expect you to submit it to Journal Neurophysiology again because... Uh, you know, we, we published the best pa paper, so. Absolutely. Don't, don't forget that. <laughs> it might be slow going because my lab is very small, but I do all my teaching in the fall, which means that I have winter and spring and summer to be in the lab 100% of the time. So with my grad students, the two of us will be down there doing these experiments. Fantastic. And you let your knob and Efren play your, and, and focus on your work. So Exactly. <laughs> So now we know how it works. And Mark, thank you so much for uh, participating in this uh, podcast. And I hope also the listeners uh, had fun and, and are now all becoming birdsong scientists. There's a lot to be <laughs> explored. And I think it's a great area of research. So Mark, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to your next uh, studies and all the best. Okay. Bye -bye. Thank you, Nino. It was really fun. I really appreciate it. And thank you for inviting me. I was, I was very honored. I have to be honest. <laughs>